Hi everyone, and welcome to Fine Vines and Wine. I'm your host, Karis Pixie, and each week I'll be giving you all an insight into the behind the scenes of our favorite beverage, wine. I'd love for you to use this podcast platform as a winery guide for your next weekend away, exploring everything Australia has to offer. You never know, you might discover a new spot or two to visit. I acknowledge the Cadigal and the Wollamadigal peoples, traditional custodians of the land that we recorded today's podcast episode on. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the culture and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. On this episode of Fine Vines and Wine, I'm joined by Gabriella, part-time sommelier in Sydney and the creator of the amazing Instagram account, The Wine About. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. How's the beginning of your week been? Thanks for having me. The beginning of the week has been pretty good. I had a bit of a wine dinner last night, so not feeling super oh, fresh, amazing. but I will push through. But yeah, it's been a good week. Just starting, got a few days at work ahead of me and hopefully lots of study. Ah, oh, amazing. Where was the wine dinner at? At Bebo in Double Bay. Um, so Luella Matthews, uh, she's the head oh, song there. Okay. She just does an amazing job. The food is super delicious. Yeah, I've heard it's meant to be really good there. Yeah, it's really good. I'd say it's probably one of my favorite little wine bars in Sydney. Okay, awesome. I'll have to check it out. So I'm going to jump straight into some questions. How long have you been working in wine and why the wine industry? So I've been working in wine now for about six years. I'd say I'm still probably working in wine just because of the amazing people that I've met along the way. The reason why is my train of thought about getting out of hospitality six or seven years ago um, when I was managing a few pubs and doing the events there. I was just a little bit tired and I was like, how can I get out of hospitality? Let's study wine, (laughs) which isn't really my finest idea because they're so entangled. But I didn't really set out to be a som and work in a restaurant. I was thinking more wine education, hence the Instagram marketing, or just anything that had more family-friendly hours, just working in hospitality for five years. You just miss out on so many events, like birthdays, engagement parties. You just can't get Mm. the nights off. So I was a little bit tired of that. So I kind of remember, to be honest, what sparked the whole thing of let's study wine. But I kind of just went in full force, started doing all those Wesset courses, the Wine Scholar Guild, French Wine Scholar. Even at the time, Sydney Wine Academy had this sommelier course they were offering, just focusing on Australian wines and I did that too. I just honestly did course after course after course because when you start studying wine, you really, you can't stop, right? There's just so much to learn, so many countries, so many regions. And I started off working in customer service at the Wine Society, which is no longer the Wine Society. I I can't remember what they've changed their name to, but it was just really just taking um, inbound calls helping people locate their missing wine and all that kind of stuff. But it was a great place and a great introduction to work and we got to do lots of tastings. But I guess the reason I'm still working here in the wine industry is because of the people. And I I love meeting the winemakers and kind of being able to be their storyteller in a way through my Instagram and connecting those small producers with people who love wine and kind of just being their, their cheerleader, I guess. And promoting them because these smaller wine producers they don't have marketing budgets like the big guys do you yeah, know I completely agree with that like I feel it's so hard for 
smaller wineries who don't have budget to really get their wines out there because I feel like when someone goes to a bottle shop, they're either going to go for something they know or something, I guess, if someone recommends something, they'll pick it, but they normally pick what they know and what they love. Yeah. I see it all the time. Like, because I work in retail, you often just have the people walk in, they know a winery, just like the big guys, like, oh, Tolbrook, okay, I'll get that because I know what it is. Yeah. And they're still relatively small, but I'm trying to push those little small family winemakers. And if people kind of give me a chance and I just jump on their Vivino app, I can certainly point them in the <laughs> right direction. Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I feel once someone knows what they like, they do really stick with that. So it's so nice to sort of branch out a little bit. Completely. And then people discover like certain varieties they wouldn't usually go towards and they come back and they're super happy and excited mm. to to find more. Yeah, they definitely. I've actually never heard of that app. What is it? Vivino. So you scan a wine label and then it comes up with a score. Okay. So whatever it is, 3.9, 4.2. But that score is what other people. So say you have a bottle of, I don't know, I've just got this bottle here, Samiotti Shiraz. You take a picture of it, you put it on Vivino, and then you write your own review and you give it a score out of five. Mm. And then, so say if like thousands of people do it, okay. it has like an average score of 4.1. And people kind of base their their wine buying sometimes off that. I've never actually used the app. I'm pretty sure that's how it works. Don't quote me. But yeah, you go into a wine shop or anywhere, you scan the label and it comes up with reviews and um, a score. So it's like a community-based scoring app for wine. Ah, okay. Okay, that makes sense. And then then people people go off those reviews, even though they're not experts. Yeah. Which I like. Oh, okay. (laughs) I have typed in wines to Vivino before like some natural wines just to see if it's super natural and faulty and whatnot I like yeah. it for that but I wouldn't stand in a wine store and purchase a wine off Vivino I would more ask the people who are working in the shop because they've tried the wines and they've got a better understanding I know it's good and it's evil at the same time <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, definitely. No, if I was going to a bottle store, I definitely wouldn't sit on an app. I'd either do it before I went. It's funny though. I make a joke about it for the customers. I see them on the app. I'm like, Ooh, what's the score on that wine? I'm like, do you want some help? (laughs) Oh my God. That's so funny. Um, where, which bottle shop do you work? Uh, At the moment I work at Best Sellers in um, Darlinghurst on Crown Street. But I started retail wine life at Annadale Cellars, and that is such a good little wine shop. I still go back there like every month or so. They just have such an amazing range of like interesting natural wines. Mm, no, I definitely prefer the smaller bottle shops. I feel like they definitely have like so many different ones to like your standard, your standard like well-known brands. Yeah, and there's always going to be someone pretty knowledgeable at those shops as well who can kind of guide you to the right yeah. direction. What does a typical, I've added in an extra question, sorry. Um, <laughs> what right. does a typical day look like for you when, when you're working at bestsellers? It can vary. Depends like how many, how many wine deliveries do we have showing up? Like it is not a glamorous mm. job. <laughs> People might think I'm just like standing around <laughs> tasting wine all day, but that is not the case. Yeah, it's a wine store. So after all, we're getting heavy boxes of wine delivered and cases and cases and cases of beer. So you can spend hours of the day just playing Tetris with wine boxes, stocking up. And oh, then, wow. Yeah. It's, when I worked at Annandale, we would have pallets of beer arrive. 
And I would literally spend like hours just like carrying cases of beer upstairs and putting them into the cool room. So it's not all glamorous. I mean, and then you do get to try some nice wines and stuff like that. But Mm. there's a lot of um, hard work and sweat that goes into working in retail. Like, yeah, wine is not light. Often these wine stores as well have very limited storage space. So it's like a constant like game of Tetris trying to figure out where to stack this box and where to put that. And Yeah, fun times. But on the plus side, we get to try lots of wine. <laughs> and we get to speak to, you know, people that are passionate about wine because they're the kind of people that are really coming into yeah, those no, kind of stores. Yeah, definitely. That would be amazing. And- I also spend a lot of time at work just Googling new wines that come into the shop. Because I can't try every wine. I mean, I don't have the budget for that. Mm. So I often try and do a lot of research on new products and stuff and new producers that we get in just so if people do ask me, I can tell them what I know. Do you pick the wines that come into the store? Not so much a bestsellers, but when I was managing wine culture in Roseville Chase, I did. um, And I was working there with two other part-time guys. um, And I always tried to make it like a collective thing that we all try the wines and we all agree that we should get the the wines in. The interesting thing about that shop is mm. it kind of has like a completely different customer base in a way. There's a lot of kind of big Shiraz drinkers out there. Um, so you kind of have to mm-hmm. alter your wine buying a little bit as opposed to say a previous wine culture. I worked at Annandale and there's a much younger demographic who are a little bit more, can I say this, I don't know, open-minded or keen to try yeah. like um, alternative styles of wine. Then moving to wine culture, people were a little bit more conservative with their wine choices. So you always have to kind of keep the, I guess, the demographic in mind when making wine buying purchases. And then at Best Sellers, it's kind of like a mix of both clientele. You have people who want classic wines, but I just think with you know, natural wine, it's it's not slowing down. It's growing and growing and growing. People also want that kind of style. And just being in the city, you, you have that kind of younger crowd keen to try some stuff. Mm. Especially in Darlinghurst as well. I find like Darlinghurst is like quite a cool and up and coming area. So I feel like you, they would want to try different stuff as well. Yeah. Where Roseville Chase, it's just a, it's a lot of families, a lot of older generation and there's nothing wrong with people wanting to drink those styles of wine um and you just have to cater to what your customers want and you like i did put wines that i love and a few natural wines or skin contact wines and they did sell but you just can't make that majority of the stock what are your thoughts on natural wines how much time you do a lot about it on your instagram how much time (laughs) do we have because this is I could honestly oh just go on and on. I have so many thoughts. Some of my thoughts probably contradict some of my other thoughts. It's just so I think we should start by kind of defining what natural wine is. And I think the French have done a pretty good example. Like they've done it pretty well. The French love wine laws and regulating stuff. So they created like a framework for this mm. kind of type of wine. So when a consumer opens a bottle of so-called natural wine, The consumer has a little bit of protection. However, it still doesn't guarantee the wine is going to be fault-free. But there's a few things that you need to do to be a certified natural wine in France. The first being certified organic grapes, which I think is really important Mm -hmm. if you're going to claim your wine is natural. Um, Hand-picking, fermented with native yeast. So a lot of um, commercial wines are adding packet yeast. So here there's none of that. And it's just the yeast that are present on the grapes. And then there's kind of several 
modern um, winemaking techniques that are not allowed to be used, like reverse osmosis, filtration, and flash pasteurization, and mm. also the sulfur. So the sulfur can only be added prior to bottling, not during the winemaking, and it has to be less than 30 milligrams. Okay. I'm pretty sure. So a lot. But they also have another classification for uh, sulfur-free natural wine. So that's like a, a rough idea of what natural wine is, I guess. And I think that's a, a good guide. And when I read that, though, there are many, many wines claiming to be natural on the shelves in Sydney, but are not. First of all, a lot of those wines with those funky label, labels and like cloudy wine, they're not made with organic grapes, but they have a cool label. So I feel like consumers instantly perceive them to be a natural wine. And I think a lot of winemakers are maybe just jumping on the bandwagon. Um, yeah. I just, for me, yeah. it has to be organic to begin with. Like you can't go buying cheap um, conventional grapes and calling it natural. But in saying that, a lot of my favorite producers do fall into that um, natural category. I don't hate natural wine. Mm. I know some people send me DMs <laughs> and they ask why I hate it. I'm like, I don't, guys. Like pay attention to all the content. I'm just calling out faulty natural wine um and i even hate the term natural wine because it implies that wines and winemakers who aren't claiming their wines to be natural are somehow unnatural and some of the best yeah no i get that natural wines are in my opinion by those winemakers who are just a little bit more um i like clean natural wines like i have a little bit of tolerance for faults in wine just like a little Mm. bit of brett i can tolerate like a little bit of va i can handle if it's not taking away from the fruit I mean, I would prefer it. those faults weren't there, but can handle a little bit. But the thing with faults is, like, some people enjoy the flavours that the faults give, and who am I to say that they can't enjoy those flavours in wine? Hmm. So then I think, like, sometimes a fault's now becoming desired flavours amongst natural wine drinkers. And if they're, like, maybe hmm. they're not desired flavours, but they're becoming accepted. And I'm a little bit on the fence about that because – I can't tell people what to drink and what to like. But on the other side, I'm thinking, is it a good thing that the winemaker is releasing wines that are faulty? Mm. I don't know. <laughs> so I have too many deep thoughts about <laughs> this. This keeps me up at night. But there are a few great, like, natural Australian producers. Sorenberg, for one, in Beechworth, that's all biodynamic. A lot of people wouldn't even think of his wines as natural. They're super well made. He must do a lot of cold settling because his wines aren't hazy mm. um, and cloudy. Owen Latter is another one who's doing some really cool stuff. He's also got a few no like no added sulfur wines. I think Ravensworth yeah. in Canberra is doing a great job, but I don't know if all of his grapes are certified organic. Dormalona, okay. Joe Perry, she's great in WA. She's making really good natural wines that are nice and clean. Yeah, I mean, like I used to really like them and I was drinking them like all the time. And then I had one bottle that I just hated and I haven't drank one since. It's kind of put me <laughs> off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It was Where just, you- I took it to a party and I was like, yes, this is amazing. This is going to be great. And the bottle like exploded everywhere for starters. So that was like first number thing. And then I started drinking it and I was like, this is horrible. And this is mm. all I have to drink. Great. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting because I, posted a question just yesterday on my Instagram asking if us as consumers should be able to return wines like that that are undrinkable 
And I was shocked about the amount of people who said, no, it's the risk of natural wine. But what? So if I buy something, a bottle of wine, with the bottle of wine, the intention is for it to be consumed. And if it is undrinkable, surely Mm. it's not, you know, it's not fit for consumption and it's not there doing its purpose. Wine is meant to be consumed. If I can't drink it because it's faulty, surely I should be entitled to my money back. And I think that's yeah. letting people get away with things then. If we're saying, no, that's the risk of natural wine, it could be faulty and you can't get your money back. Some of these natural wines are $100 plus. That's a lot of money to yeah, be gambling. Exactly. I think as consumers, we need to make a stand and say, no, we don't want these fault. And then maybe importers or yeah. people buying the wines for their shop, well, then there'll be more pressure on them to stop stocking them. Yeah, exactly. I even had someone send me a DM saying that they know of people in wine stores that stock natural wine, intentionally intentionally selling mousy wines to people who are just getting into natural wine because they won't know what it is. Well, that is the worst introduction to natural wine. Like, that is horrible. That is a horrible thing to do to someone because they're just like, oh, well, they're not going to really know what it is and they'll just think it's natural wine. And maybe that's where the problem begins because their first introduction is a wine that tastes like that and they think it's meant to taste yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah, exactly. And they want to enjoy natural wine, so then they just think it's a part of the package. I don't know. If I got a bottle and I thought it was faulty, I probably wouldn't return it, but I'm just super awkward with stuff like yeah. that. Like even with clothes, if I like buy them and have to take them back to the shop, I'm like super weird about it. I just don't like doing yeah. it. So... <laughs> I guess there's that as well. You just feel a bit awkward being like, oh, hi, I don't think this tastes right. Yeah, Um, yeah. Okay. (laughs) Especially if what sparked that whole question was someone sent me a message saying they purchased a bottle of natural wine. It wasn't cheap. He said it was like $70. Mm. And he couldn't drink it because there was just, there was, he was a winemaker. He said there was like Brett, VA, Mouse. It was undrinkable. Mm. But he said that he felt like he couldn't return the bottle because he purchased it from a shop that specializes in natural wine. He thought they would just have the attitude of, you know, what did you expect? Yeah, and you at least want it to be palatable. I think that's like the bare minimum the wine can be, right? Palatable, drinkable. Mm. So, yeah, I don't know what we can do as consumers to stop this problem, but it's definitely a problem. I get so many DMs of people telling me those stories. And I'm just thinking, like, this is crazy. This one song, oh, I think it was it was somewhere overseas, maybe it was in Denmark, mm. was trying to sell one of these expensive natural wines. Uh, it was pretty expensive. Yeah. It was a few hundred dollars, three hundred and fifty dollars, I think he said. But he, the som, even said to the customer, like, "You have to drink it within thirty minutes." What? Why are you stocking a wine that needs what? to be consumed within thirty minutes? Because otherwise, it's going to fall apart and be mousy. Is pretty much what they were getting at by saying that. Because that happens. That's crazy. Yeah, but like, I mean, at least the som was honest. But why would you intentionally put a bottle of wine like that on the wine list? if you know it's going to fall apart within 30 minutes. But, I mean, then again, I can't tell people what to drink and what to like. And some people actually enjoy the faults and think it adds to the character of the wine and it speaks of vintage. I don't understand how it speaks of vintage. Mm. Um, But, you know, can't tell people what to drink. If they enjoy those flavours, why not? When you talk about mousy, what, Mm. what do you mean by that? So it's a fault that... It's, you can't detect it on the nose. It's all to do with the okay. palate. And it, something happens when you put the wine in your mouth, something with the pH. The pH interacts with your saliva and then it causes this kind of 
furry feeling in the mouth. Some people are super sensitive to it. I am. Some people, I think it's like 20% of the population can't detect it. So lucky them. That's, oh, wow. Yeah, 20, I think it may even be more, but like a 20, let's say minimum 20% of people can't even detect mousiness. So lucky them. Yeah, lucky them. But yeah, it's undetectable on the nose, only on the palate, and it comes in at the end. So you might be like, oh, this isn't bad, and then bang, it hits, and it's disgusting. And it literally tastes furry, and it's not for me, not for me, like Ooh. a nutty, furry finish. Yeah, that doesn't sound nice at all. It's not. I hate it. Some people don't mind it though. No. So this is why like in my mind just keeps circling back. I'm like, but it's not good, but some people don't like it. So who am I to say what they can and can't drink? Because I've sat with people before. Just like last week we were at this wine bar and we were given this wine to try and it had every fault. It had VA, it was bretty, it was mousy. And one of the guys was like, no, I really like this. I really love it. I'll drink a bottle and I was like what I was like please explain how and he was like you know I don't mind it I actually think it's really good so what wines are you drinking right now talking going a little off natural wines if you're drinking natural wines um and is there anything that we have to try and add to our list yeah. that you're like loving at the moment for a while now I've been enjoying more of the the lighter medium style red wines focusing more on a style rather than sticking to a variety just because you know, many great varieties can be made into a light to medium style of wine. Um, even a grape like Shiraz, mm. which I think people often associate um, in Australia with being this big, ripe and kind of Barossan wine, can be made into more lighter styles if you just look at kind of cooler climate regions and producers that are picking earlier. So say the, the Yarra Valley has some great lighter bodied Syrahs and then varieties mm. that just like consistently fit into this style would be like Pinot Noir. Gamay, Frappado from Sicily, Menthea from Ribera Sacra, Norello Mascalese is good. That one's got a little bit more kind of tannin and bite to it. But there's focus mm. more on a style as opposed to just sticking to a variety. I know a lot of people can get into a variety rut and just drink, you know, Shiraz the whole yes. life or Pinot the whole life. Yeah, no, I was I was kind of like that before I started this wine journey. I was only drinking rosé. Anything light and pale was yeah. basically all <laughs> I was drinking. Yeah. But now I'm actually, like, now I feel like I haven't had a rosé in ages because I've been trying so many different wines and actually went to Orange a couple of weeks ago and discovered that I actually do like Chardonnay. I thought I hated yeah. Chardonnay, but Orange apparently I do like Chardonnay. it. So Who's making some good Chardonnay up there? Um, Patina Wines yeah. was amazing. I'm obsessed with that. Uh, who else did I buy Chardonnay from? I bought some from Philip Shaw as well. Yeah. And I bought a Chardonnay from Ross Hill. Yes, Ross Hill. Too. Oh, very nice. Did you go check out the wines at DeSales? No, I went, I went to Orange four years ago and we went there then. And then I did want to go to them, but our tour guide said they don't take tours anymore. They're, that Chardonnay is really, really good. It's very smart Chardonnay. Oh, is it? Yeah. I only bought one bottle when I was in Orange just because I have so much wine. And that was the one mm. I bought, one of the Chardonnays. It's just so delicious. I have to try that one. I'll add it to my list. Mm. The ever-growing list of wines we need to try. Oh, my gosh. My wine fridge is so full. I'm like, my boyfriend's like, you do not need any more wine. I'm like, but I do. I need to try it all. <laughs> yeah. Every time 
I walk into work, there's always like new wines. I'm like, no, this is not good for my wallet. Get, stop getting a new wines. I can't afford this. What's your most memorable moment that you've experienced during your wine journey? It's probably trying to make my own wine. Didn't work out very well, but it was a fun experience. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it was a few years ago now when I was working at Annandale Cellars. Um, me and another guy, Sam, who worked there, we just had an idea like, let's go make some wine. We'll get fruit from Mudgee. Mm. So we contacted Will Gilbert. He's a super nice guy. And he said we could have some of his uh, Sangiovese. So we drove okay. up and we stayed the night. And then the next morning, we went and picked some of the fruit. Um, picking is hard work it's not glamorous at all <laughs> i feel like people have this idea of vintage and i've like, heard it's really hard work it. yeah i was only doing it for like <laughs> an hour and i was exhausted it's like this sucks and it's all like oh spiders and insects <laughs> crawling all over you it's okay it's it's not the funnest no, thing you. picking grapes um so we picked like enough grapes that we thought we could make a small batch and will was super nice and he stemmed all the the grapes for us and then he just chucked some dry ice on it so it'd be better protected mm. for the drive back to Sydney so we drove back to Sydney in the work yeah. van with all these grapes in the back and then we made it at the back of the shop at Annandale Cellars and we were just kind of stomping what? yeah just in these huge tubs we were like stomping and crushing the grapes it was so messy we made an absolute mess but it was really good fun and then we oh put all the like the um the grapes and stuff into these plastic beer kegs because it was really like the only vessel we had we're not going to go buy a small vat or like a little barrel and sam sam works in the beer industry as well so he was like i've got some spare empty plastic kegs so we chucked it into that and we just let it kind of macerate on its skins for a few weeks and i remember like during work i would just like go downstairs and stick this like (laughs) this broomstick inside the keg to like punch down it was just so ridiculous oh my god (laughs) so ridiculous the wine was great though i didn't expect it to ever be good though (laughs) kind of tasted like a like a lambrusco but with fia it wasn't our finest work but it was good fun Mm. and sam's dad actually makes some really cool natural wines um out of his house in Queensland. Um, so he makes the Wedded oh, wow. to the Weather wines. Have you seen those around? Wedded to the Weather. I don't think so. Yeah, no, like I don't think I have. Elephant, I think, on the label. But, yeah, that's Sam's dad. So he was trying to give us some tips. But, yeah, didn't work out very well. But it was good fun. It was a good little memory. And Will is such a champion for letting us have oh those God, grapes. definitely. It's such a memorable yeah. moment. And distemming them for us. Because if we had to hand distem, that would have taken us hours it just would have been so tedious i would also love to make my own wine once or twice that would be amazing even if it didn't work out it would just be fun yeah it's all about the experience i would love to work a vintage like absolutely love it it's just so hard Hmm. i mean i've got a toddler so i can't just disappear for a month to make wine i've been trying to kind of just head up to the hunter for a day or two whenever i can just to kind of see what's happening um it's just difficult managing my time with a toddler Oh my God, definitely. And it's not like you can take them to the vineyards as well. No way. So I was actually going to ask about that. I was going to say you recently helped out with a harvest, but you that was just like a quick one day. So I was going to say, how was that experience? Uh, I don't think I can claim that I helped very much. 
the grapes are picked. It was literally just like he had his Shiraz fermenting and we just helped out, did a few little body punch downs. You know, I think every, like a lot of people who love wine just have this idea like, oh, how cool would it be to just jump in a vat of grapes? And I asked Asha Tinkler if I could do that and he mm. he agreed to let me do it. And yeah, it was pretty funny. It was fun times. It was super cold, super cold in that vat. Oh yeah, it would be. It was Ooh. freezing, but it was good fun. And I do hope that I can actually do a proper vintage one day. Yeah, it, it would be it would be such a great experience to do. It'd be hard work, but it yeah, would be, it'd be an hard work. Experience. Super long hours, super long. My friend Sam, um, she's doing vintage now mm. in the Barossa with Alex Head, and it's just crazy the hours. Yeah, that you've got to work, but all for that experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. All for that memory, and it yeah. would be a great memory. So, <laughs> yeah. What's your favorite wine region, and why? I feel like I would have to say it's Beaujolais, but I have not been there. Um, haven't been able to get myself there yet, but that's just from my love of Gamay. Like it's just the ideal light drinking red and I really like it because it's like the underdog of yeah. Burgundy, right? People, it was so overshadowed by Pinot Noir. Yeah. They even banned the Gamay grape like in Burgundy in, oh, I don't know, like the 60s. Oh, what? Yeah. Philip the Bold, the Duke at the time, said it was like, unfit for human consumption so they had to um rip up all the gamay plantings and i think that's when they kind of moved further south and um started planting in Beaujolais. so it's just the underdog grape variety of burgundy and i think you know yeah he's so underappreciated and undervalued i mean these days there's a lot of a lot more hype around it but if you look you know 10 15 years ago it was pretty kind of disregarded as a variety and style and I think that whole Beaujolais Nouveau trend kind of did a little bit of damage for for its reputation because a lot of people mm-hmm. just thought of it as, you know, an easy kind of bubblegum, banana, light drinking Nouveau style when, it's, yeah. when it can be so much more. You just have to look for the crews, right? There's 10 crews, each is slightly different. So there's quite a bit of variety there in terms of style. There's so many regions I want to I don't to go think to. I've ever tried one. You've never tried one. We need no, to change I don't think that. I have. <laughs> but you've had had the variety before, Gamay, just not from Beaujolais. I've heard of the variety through your Instagram, yeah. but I hadn't heard of it before that. I think another reason why I love Gamay is because my first blind tasting I had doing the Wesset three, um, Beaujolais was the was the wine that we were given. And I guessed it right. So I was like, yes, uh, you've okay. got my back, Beaujolais. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the obsession began. It was like the first blind wine. I was like, I can't believe I guessed that right. And also, like, Burgundy is expensive. If you want even mm. entry-level Burgundy, you're looking at like $60, $70. But if you head down south a little bit to Beaujolais for $60, $70, you can get a really, really good example of a crew wine. You're getting kind of like the best of what the region has to offer. But in Burgundy, you're getting like the very entry level of what that region has to offer, but at the same price. And there's some similarities between the great varieties and the styles. You're always going to have a little bit more kind of mm. fruit, I guess, in the Gamay. And it's just got a bit a bit different structure. Like it's not as the tannins are different. And it, I don't know, you could say it's not as serious, perhaps, as a Burgundy. It's a little bit more playful. Yeah. doesn't have the same cellaring potential a lot of the times. But, you know, it scratches that itch for me. And it's good on the wallet. For someone that hasn't had it before, what what bottle would you recommend that they start with? 
I'm just trying to think of one that would be widely available. Just working at a small wine store, mm. I recommend wines and a lot of the time they're super difficult for people to get because, I mean, either they're all sold out or yeah. the vintage has rolled. I mean, I really love Jean Foyard, his Cote de Pete. Um, I met him at Rootstock maybe like six-ish years ago and then that kind of just okay. instilled my love for the region. But that's from Morgan and that makes more kind of serious styles of um, Beaujolais and that Cote de Pie is like a particular slope in the region and that's more of, yeah, a serious, fleshy style. However, some people have told me that they've had bottles that have been riddled with bread and that breaks my heart. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> um, just being a natural wine. See, it sometimes happens. <laughs> but all the wines I've had by him have been yeah. fairly clean. I mean, Beaujolais kind of has a bit of a reputation for being a little bit bretty at times just because there's a lot of natural winemakers in that region. I'm going to say the Jean Foyard Cote de Pif if you guys can find it, but it's expensive. It's like 80 okay. dollars not cheap. I'm trying to think of like cheaper, cheaper Beaujolais. Yeah, I just, I hate always recommending like such expensive wines as well. If people are just getting into the style, I, mm. I like to suggest something that's a little bit more affordable. For like an yeah. Australian Gamay that's affordable and I think is a good introduction to the variety would be the Punt Road in Yarra Valley. You can get a bottle okay. for under $30. Um, oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. Maybe I'll start with that. It's delicious. It's like light and dry. Um, and then with a little bit of airtime, it gets kind of like savory and meaty. It's, it's really good. Are there any other wine regions that you would like to visit that you haven't yet? So many, especially regions <laughs> in Australia. Like I did a little bit of wine traveling earlier this year to kind of Mudgy Orange and The Hunter. But there's just so many. I want to I check out Canberra mm. wine region. There's just so many producers doing amazing things. You have Ravensworth, you have Madder Wines, you have Malaluka. Like just seems like there's so much cool stuff happening there. I also want to go to Tassie. I want to go to Victoria. Yes. Um, I love Victorian wines. I would love to check out like Beechworth and Heathcote mm. and Mornington. Honestly, it's endless. I want to go everywhere. <laughs> and then like we're not even talking international. Like I would love to go to the Moselle. <gasps> oh, that would be an absolute dream. Same. I would love to go everywhere there's so many places in Australia I haven't been to and then to think internationally as well I'm like oh my gosh just so many places so what do you think the wine industry will see more or less of in 2021 definitely more natural wine <laughs> yes not, I think it's so not as slowed well. down but I think we're gonna see it with maybe more um certification behind it like more growers certifying to become organic or maybe being a little bit more responsible about it, about their natural winemaking. Mm. And I guess just time will tell with that. It's a lot of trial and error for these winemakers sometimes. I think more yes. like alternative packaging ideas. Like I know canned wines have taken off quite a bit in America and maybe that trend is going to follow suit here. Or even yes. those like fancy looking goon sacks, those wine pouches. Like they're, they're not in a box, it's like a wine pouch. Yes, seen they're those? amazing. I'm actually interviewing um, in a couple of weeks the founder of A Glass Of who does the fancy pouches. So that'll be oh, really interesting cool. to hear about. Yeah. yeah but I've never tried wine from the pouches. Um, so, yeah, it'd be Jared a fun Dixon, interview. Jared Dixon, who makes the Gilly wines, puts his wine in those little pouches. And, like, that, that's great for, like, the beach or a picnic. Okay. And they're just, like, easy to just, like, chuck in the SD. Yeah. 
What else are we going to see more of? Probably like more growth in the digital world. We already saw that a lot with COVID, right? People, wineries jumping yeah. more online, reaching reaching their audience that way. Just like the continued growth of online sales. So many new online retailers always popping up. Yes. People are time poor or they can't leave the house because of COVID. <laughs> They're just ordering lots of wine online. And less of, probably like we're seeing it now, just like um, less ripe, heavy, heavily oaked, high alcohol wines. I think people are mm. turning away from that style. And people have been for a few years now, but I think we'll just continue to see less of that. Even I know a lot of producers in the Barroso, you know, they're picking earlier. They want to retain more of that acidity so they don't have to turn add acid um, just to have kind of brighter and fresher styles. Do you think we'll see more boxed wine as well? I can't imagine a day where I would go and buy a box of wine. I just don't know. Is it appealing to consumers? I mean, there's surely a demographic who, who wouldn't mind boxed wine. I don't know. What do you think of boxed wine? I, I don't know if I can get behind it. Maybe I'm too much of a snob like that. I actually really like it. I got sent some from Banterbox, which yeah. is um, part of Calabria Family Wines, mm. and it's really nice. It's really good to take to like a barbecue or yeah. a picnic yeah. or if you're having a barbecue because it's like instead of opening like three bottles, mm. you just open one box and it's yeah. two liters of wine. Also, when I interviewed Emma Norbiato from Calabria Family Wines, she said that they're using it as a way to experiment with different wines and also to introduce new wines like Montepulciano to people yeah. who haven't tried it before and don't want to spend like $70 mm-hmm. on a bottle of wine they've never tried before. Yeah. So she said they're also using it as a sort of test. I would be keen to try some. I just don't know if it would be a wine for me. It's just, I guess it doesn't yeah. fit into the way like, I consume wine. I feel like that appeals to someone who can like put it in the fridge and like have a glass a night and not have to worry about about it changing, right? Because they stay fresh for weeks, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. Where I, I barely they stay drink fresh by for myself. 30 days. 30 days. Wow. See, but I've yeah, like 30 days. Rarely drink alone by myself, like at home. Maybe I'll yeah. have like a can of sour beer or like if I'm drinking wine, it's more to taste it and to write tasty notes. And then when I am drinking, it's more in like a social setting and I bring a bottle of wine. But maybe one day I'll rock up with a box of wine. Who knows? It's good for the environment. Surprise everyone. Yeah. Do you have any wine goals for 2021 of your own? I need to finish this Western Diploma. That's what I need to do. Yes. It's been like about two years now since I've put off this wine exam, um, just life, right? Oh my Having God. A, being pregnant, yeah. I was pregnant and I was like, I will study when the baby's here, thinking I would have all this free time. No, when the baby came, I was like, oh. I am not studying. I have no time to study. I had this idea that she would like sleep a lot of the time and I would oh study while she was sleeping, but no, that didn't oh my work. God, so funny. Yeah, that didn't no. work out. So I definitely need to finish that. I mean, it's one exam. It's only the theory. I don't have to sit the tasting. I really want to get that over and done with. And that is pretty time consuming. Big. Um, yeah. So I'm trying to just focus on that because my mind can wander pretty easily if I start thinking of everything else I want to do. So I'm trying to focus on that diploma and get out of the way. Oh my God, same. Yeah. I just feel like it's like this thing that hovers over my head, this Wesson diploma. I'm like, I need to get rid of you. It's unit three in the diploma, which is just massive. Like, the book I have is 
500 pages, double-sided, tiny oh, font. Wow. It's like the tiniest font in the oh. world as well. Um, so there's just a lot to Oh, my God, that sounds awful. In. Yeah, and I don't even know how my brain able mm. or will be able to uh, retain all the information. But, I mean, it's not possible. Lots of people have it, so <laughs> I must be able to do it. Exactly. Um, with the with the levels with the diploma, I'm guessing it's not multiple choice like the other ones. No, <laughs> no. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> but they want like um long winded answers. So, oh god, I have to write two A4 pages on the question. So you have to know in depth about a lot of different things, like two whole pages of writing. Oh god, my hand gets so crampy. Like it is a lot. Yeah, so you really need to kind of do a deep dive into everything and be able to kind of connect the dots and have a really good understanding of certain topics. And they could quiz you on anything. Like it's every single region in the world. Oh, God. It sounds like a lot. Yeah, but it'll be worth it. (laughs) That's what I tell myself. Do you have have any tips for people that are studying it or interested in doing their WESIT um, training? What worked really well for me was, yeah, to have that study plan. Like, I was super consistent. I would literally get home from work and just study straight away for a few hours. Um, having that good routine, um, the courses are totally achievable. You just have to have discipline because a lot of the work is self-study. Yeah. I found flashcards really helpful for WESIT 2 and 3, not so much for diploma because they're just asking such – they expect such long <laughs> responses. Flashcards aren't, well, for me, super helpful in that way. Don't help. Yeah, studying maps is amazing because you you see everything on the map and you you know okay so the Atlantic Ocean is here that means it's got a maritime climate or if it's the region is further inland so if you're looking at a map of Spain and you you're looking at Madrid you can see it's in the center so it's going to have more of a continental climate you don't really have the influences of the sea there so just kind of visualizing that map in your mind I think is hmm. super helpful and just knowing where everything is and kind of okay the climatic influences um because that's something you can just be able to write and write about which they want in diploma um and what i also did was so nerdy um i wrote <laughs> down all the previous questions on like pieces of paper and then i would draw okay. them out of like a cup like a mug in my kitchen and then i would um quiz myself and then i would write down like that's actually an a great answer. idea. Um, just write down everything I knew and then I would go back over my answer and just figure out what, like, all the information that I'm missing and then jot that down. Doing um, practice tests I found super helpful. I would even record, like, oh, my God, I can't believe how much I was a nerd back in the day. I would record myself <laughs> reading out my wine notes and then listen back to it when I was, like, doing, like, chores around the house. <laughs> Oh my god, that's amazing though. That's great. <laughs> oh my god. That's when I was like just started diploma and like for that first year I was just like full force doing absolutely everything. On my like 30 minute lunch break, I was that person in the staff room like studying diploma. <laughs> Every spare minute of my life was spent studying. What's your favorite food and wine pairing at the moment? Mm, look, I've got a little bit of a, a sweet tooth. Um, so it's, mm. I don't know if we, I guess it's a food and wine pairing, but <clears throat> Pedro Eximenez, it's a, uh, Pedro Eximenez is a, like a white variety. Um, it's a Spanish white variety and it okay. gets made often to like a dessert style wine, a sh- dessert sherry. It's like intensely 
sweet and dark. It's like almost black and like super sweet. There's like three to 400 grams of sugar per liter. Um, oh, wow. If you use this as like a ice cream topping, so you just get like really nice vanilla ice cream and you just like drizzle this mm. on top. It is amazing. Like the Pedro Ximenez is like candied figs and dates and chocolate and spice and coffee. So it is literally the best ice cream topping in the world. Is that a food and wine pairing? I don't know, but it's delicious. <laughs> yes. That sounds amazing. I'm like, that's yeah. so like, so random, but so great. I'm like, that's definitely a food and wine pairing. It is adult ice cream topping. It is delicious. And the great thing about the sherry is you can open a bottle and you can keep it in the fridge for a few months and it'll be fine. So it's just like a little exactly. sweet treat, little naughty sweet treat, whenever you like. Is there um, a food and wine pairing you're loving? Is there a little go-to of yours? I don't know, actually. I don't – I guess most of the time I just drink whatever. Yeah. I don't really, I don't really like food and wine pair. Very yeah. much. Yeah. I'm trying to think. Do I know? See, I don't do it often I as well. I just go is... with whatever I'm feeling like. And I, I don't do a lot of food and wine pairings at home. Just like I don't really drink much mm. when I'm at home. And then when I'm out to eat, I do kind of take it into consideration. But I, maybe it's because I'm not from like a SOM background is why I don't think too much about it. Yeah. Perhaps. I kind of just drink what I like and eat what I like. Same. I think that's the best <laughs> way to do it. Yeah. If you could take, this is a hard one, I know. Um, if you could take any Australian wine to the blow events, what would they be and why? So a barbecue, a dinner party, and when you feel like a couple of glasses of wine at home. So for the barbecue, 100% I'm going to bring the Demi Syrah. Um, that okay. is from Heathcote, made by Adam Foster, who is like just obsessed with Shiraz. And it is a, like a nice kind of medium-bodied Syrah. It's kind of very Rhone-esque, I guess you could say. It's got a lot of that black olive, that pepper, still with some beautiful fruit. Mm. And it's medium-bodied, so it's not really going to overpower anything at the barbecue. Like it's very food-friendly. And also you can get it for like $30. Yeah. Like $30 is the most you're going to pay for it. Oh, perfect. Um, and it's just delicious. And I feel like it would be a pretty like a crowd-pleasing wine. So that's what I'd bring to a barbecue, that Demi Syrah. so delicious. I feel so much of it at work. (laughs) Whenever anyone wants a Shiraz, I'm like, how about this one? And then (laughs) for a dinner party, I always like to bring something like a little bit different to a dinner party, maybe just like a a variety that perhaps people haven't tried before. And the one that kind of sticks out that I had kind of recently would be the Clos Sabone Tiburon Rouge. So it's a red wine from Provence. Okay. The great variety being Tiburon, but I mean, there's barely any plantings of this variety. It's pretty obscure grape, but it just makes this like beautiful, light, kind of meaty, savory. Sorry, there's a theme going on here of me liking these mm. savory star wines. <laughs> but, um, there is. <laughs> that's what I would bring because. If it's not going to go for the food, it's light enough to have like before the meal as kind of like an aperitif yeah. while everyone's just talking and stuff and almost guaranteed that no one's had Tiburon before. Um, and it's just, just like small little biodynamic producer, real wines bring it in. He brings in such amazing wines. And that's like around $50, so not crazy expensive. Um, it's like a clean natural wine as well. Okay. It's got a little bit of a story behind it. So just kind of anything a little bit 
alternative, just trying to something that's got a little yeah. story and hopefully no one's tried before, as opposed to just like mm-hmm. bringing a Shiraz or bringing a Cabernet. And then when I'm at home, probably a Riesling. And like maybe okay. an, maybe like an off dry Riesling, just something that's like super easy to drink. I don't have to think mm-hmm. about it much. And um, Dr. Lucen, that's like a, a pretty big winemaker in Moselle. And you can get his, the Dr. Lucen Riesling from Moselle for like $22. And it's just such an easy drinking. Oh, wow. Riesling. There's a little bit of residual sugar. I don't mind residual sugar. I'm pouring <laughs> sweet sherry over my ice cream. So yes. I'm, I'm happy with some sugar. Um, and it's just, yeah, it's just easy drinking, crowd pleaser wine. I've never had anyone say they didn't like it. And it's mm. cheap. You know, if I'm just drinking at okay. home, I don't want to open anything too expensive. And that's also available like so many places at Dr. Lucen Riesling. It's like $20. I think you can even find it at Dan Murphy's. It's everywhere. That's perfect. Thank you so much for coming on, by the way. I just want to say a massive thank you. It's been so interesting and I've learned so much about natural wine and everything else, but a lot about natural wines. No, it's been amazing. Thank you so much. I hope I didn't ramble too much about natural wine. I hope it made sense somehow because I can tend to go on a tangent. It's so interesting. It, it made sense. No, honestly, it okay. made sense. It was really, really interesting. Thank you. All right. Wonderful. Thank you so much for listening. Please rate, review, subscribe and share with your friends. I'll see you next week for another closer look into the wine industry. Now go and grab that glass of wine. You deserve it.